I had to be taught how to breathe. Early on, when I first started learning about prana practices, I realized that when I was breathing and I paid attention to my diaphragm, it kind of worked in reverse. Hi, I'm Teresa, and welcome to the podcast that explores the stories the body holds and the stories the body tells. I'm Sherry, and our aim is to connect the individual to the collective through our shared stories of living in a body. And each week, Sherry and I pick a different topic and have a casual conversation. This is Anecdotal Anatomy. We are talking about energy and breath and the prana, uh, pranamaya kosha, which as I had, as we had, I think, both said in the past, you know, prana goes to breath. So pranamaya, kosha, and prana practices, although they link, they're, they're definitely independent. Well, maybe we'll start there because, you know, sometimes there's a confusion about this, this sheath just because prana, when we prana, pranayama is breath work in yoga. And so prana is that energy. Pranamaya is the... It's, it's energy and breath. So here we go. This morning, I've started, I do a daily pranayama practice of Nadi Shodhana, which is alternate nostril breathing. It's a whole technique. It's a yoga pranayama experience. If I, if I mess up pranamaya and pranayama, please forgive me. But it's where you switch breathing through each nostril alternately. It's in the title. And it's meant to sort of balance, you know, both sides. Each side apparently has a different part of your nervous system that it affects. And so there's, there's science behind it. And I don't pretend to be a scholar in that. Google, what are the benefits of, of Nadi Shodhana? But what I will say is that since I have started this daily practice of, a, right, so I do my movement, I do my little chanting, and then I sit down and I do my meditation, but I start with eight rounds of Nadi Shodhana. And I usually breathe in, the count, my count is seven or eight, depending on the day. But what's happened is, I think there's a material change in the way that my energy begins my day. And, you know, it's hard, these unknowables, like what exactly are we attributing this to? Is it a direct response from this? Is it a combination of practices? Could it be the diet? Could it be the daily walk? I mean, it could be any number of things. But the consistent thing that has been with this sadhana has been this alternate nostril breathing. And there is, and, and they also say that like every 20 minutes or so, the dominant nostril will change. So I've noticed at different times when I do it, it's not always exactly the same time. It's usually 7.30 or 8 or maybe even 8.30. But one of my nostrils, and it's not always the same one, will be easier to breathe through. And that's interesting. But since we're talking about breath and energy, you know, this kind of slow, deliberative breathing has a certain effect on the nervous system. But if we're doing breath of fire, which is a breath that with high blood pressure now, I probably would be ill-advised to do as a practice, but it's like blowing out birthday candles with your nose in rapid fires. But that increases the, the energy. It increases those hormones that give you that get up and go. It increases that. I don't know if that's true about the hormones. I was just kind of writing a, a thought. Is that true about the hormones? I mean, the sure. cortisol, I'm thinking maybe some the adrenaline, things so. that kind of get you going. And so then there's the long, there's the in for four, hold for seven, out for eight that is often offered for people with anxiety or, you know, extending your exhale longer than your, there's all these different breath practices that are direct, that correlate with different energies we want to evoke or 
suppressed. So interesting. It is. And, you know, what I really find interesting is when I would introduce different breath practices, either to a group class or a private class or a private session, you know, I would often get something like I've been breathing for since, you know, since I got slapped on the butt at birth, <laughs> I, like I really have to be taught how to breathe. But I know I had to be taught how to breathe early on when I first started learning about prana practices, I realized that when I was breathing and I paid attention to my diaphragm, it kind of worked in reverse. So when you take an inhale, the diaphragm descends, it pushes down on the organs, it get, creates space for the lungs to expand and accept the breath. And when you exhale, the diaphragm comes back up under the ribs, releases the organs and helps to like, you know, I think of it as tapping the bottom of my lungs and saying, okay, breath, you can leave right now. And, you know, kind of this assistance. But when I first learned, I would realize that I was grabbing for the breath. So it was coming through my nose, not my diaphragm. And it would sound more like, you know, I'm really exaggerating with the, but when I would breathe in that manner, my abdomen sucked in on the inhale and out on the exhale, which is kind of opposite. So I really worked hard to re-engage a relationship with my diaphragm and remind myself, you know, a body worker who works with muscles and fascia, remind myself that the diaphragm was a muscle that benefited from exercise. So I guess I said the word I, I was breathing wrong. And because there's so many different prana practices, I don't think wrong was the correct word, but not in alignment with natural breath. So that's very interesting. I had a student once who naturally did reverse breathing, inhaled by drawing the navel toward the spine and exhaled the belly out. And we were working on, you know, sort of practicing the other, like lying down, typically we would breathe with an inhale would extend our belly and then exhale would draw it in. And I got really, and as, as someone who was in theater and had vocal coaching, you know, breathe from the diaphragm, expand to all these. And then in yoga, we have all these different breaths. In Qigong, I was practicing for a little while and there was a breath exercise where we were instructed to draw the navel in on the inhalation. And so it took some mindset work for me to decide that that's not wrong. That's specific to this practice and this practice has a particular purpose. And so while I don't want to walk around breathing like that all the time, it was a powerful um, example. Like when I, when I first started meditating, I learned how to meditate with my eyes open. And that's how that was my origin story in meditation. And then the first time a teacher said, close your eyes. I was thinking to myself, that's fucking wrong. No, but it's not wrong. It's just another way in. And so what I'm finding now more important than anything is direct experience. Like have your experience and, you know, give it enough time to, to give you an experience. But then, you know, you then you can be discerning. Yeah. During COVID, you were doing your Monday afternoon meditations and I was at a number of them. And working with you at that time was the first time I was really introduced in a weekly practice that I took away from that time we spent together and brought it into my own practice of meditating with my eyes closed. I, I'm, I'm sorry, with my mind, my eyes 
open in Ooh, mindfulness. Oh, I love that Freudian slip. Yes, your mind my mind open. open. Ooh. Yes. yes, my mind was open to the change. So it was my mind open and my eyes. And it was challenging. I found that I was like, ooh, my first thing was resistance. I don't want to meditate, same as you. No, that's wrong. You're supposed to close your eyes and come inside when you meditate. So I like this idea that we both looked at it as wrong initially, but now it's a choice. Like, what do I feel like yes. doing today? Am I going to, you know, practice, a, have my mindfulness practice where I'm really tapping into my senses and I'm going to approach my meditation as a mindfulness meditation? Or am I going to come back to, I like closing my eyes and having that completely different experience? So, or maybe um, looking around and having an awareness meditation rather than a single point of focus mindfulness meditation, where it's all about the peripheral vision and the um, external senses that are coming in, you know, that that's a thing too, you know, follow where you are being drawn, but not in a sort of random, I'm just, you know, in a fidgety way, but in a deliberative way. In my yeah. sixth spot practice, I, I look at it more as a mindfulness practice than a meditation practice because I'm not looking for a single point of focus, which is what I do when I have more of a meditation or focus on a breath or finding a flame to look at or finding a single thing. But in my sit spot, it really is. It's owl eyes and deer ears to notice everything mm. that is going on around me which is what I love about the sit spot practice, because it's, for me, it's a mindfulness practice that allows me to see how nature is changing around me from day to day, um, to notice that when I first approach, and if I come into the threshold of where I'm going to be out in nature to do that, and I kind of walk in with my, like, I'm really in a hurry, I got to get my everything set up, the animals around me are reacting. There's a lot of movement and sounds. And at first I thought it was like, oh, look, the birds are really active today. Not really realizing that maybe I'm signaling them <laughs> that there's a lot of stuff going on around them. But once I would come into my quietness of my sit spot, the animals kind of forgot that I'm there. And I've been able to- You're just another animal. I'm just another animal. I'm just another <laughs> animal. And I really just blend right in. But it has been such a rewarding practice of mindfulness to spend enough time in the same place repetitively, almost daily, to see that the natural changes that happen within the environment. You know, like right now, the lake that I sit next to is very low on water. It's barely moving. I can see the fish. Well, they're much bigger than they probably were a few months ago when it was abundantly filled because we were coming out of spring. So the mindfulness practices of just noticing the little nuances is what I like about my mindfulness sit spot practice. Sweet. So we're not just, you know, pulling the koshas out of the air to talk about the koshas for what, the nine or 10th? 20, 50th times, we're relating it to camp. So where are we in the camp? We did C, we did A, today we're at M. So mindfulness, meditation, movement, magic, history, like all the M's, like we can bring the M's in. So we're just going to draw, we're looking at camp through the acronym, through many different lenses. So we've got the camp, 
And then we've got the koshas, then we've got the acronym, and we're offering some of the things that are inspiring the experience we're going to be having at camp. And so this is, this is also a signal, an invitation, <laughs> because there is so much magic and mystery that happens when we connect and come into community, which is C, part of our C for camp. So we want you to be there. So the magic, the magic of mindfulness. We, yeah, go ahead. And I think this is a perfect time. Like when, when, when we first started talking about camp, right? It's something that I remember from being a child, going to camp, spending time. It was running around and hopscotch. And like I said, I've only been to camp, official camp, once in my life. But summer is, was kind of like an entire camp. I have seven brothers and sisters. There were a bunch of kids in the neighborhood. So although we weren't officially away at a camp, summer was kind of camp-like. And when we first started talking about what we were going to do, there was just so many fun ways to come in. But the thing that really, really captured my attention was how accessible it is for everyone. This is mostly adult females that come to our camp. But the activities that we have planned, I was thrilled at our first camp to see the age demographic and women of all ages and physical capabilities because of these mindfulness, movement, practices, and the playful nature that both you and I approached what we brought to camp and how we talk about camp. To bring the act of, and play is at the end, but to bring this sense in everything. Yes, of vital, youthful playfulness into everything that we do. Yeah. You know, I think it's so easy to start taking everything so serious. You know, that and June used to say, the teacher at Prancing Peacock, she would say, it's only yoga people. I take my yoga practice seriously, but, you know, at the same time, it's playful. So... There's, there's that balance that we were reaching for. And I think that during the year, like you said, summer, you might not have been at camp, but it had that camp vibe. And I was a camper. I went to day camp and then I went to overnight camp for five years and I went to acting camp and then you know, other summer programs. And my kids are in camp right now. One's a counselor, one's a CIT, and one's in her final year of being a camper. So camp is a big, like that feeling, but you also go camping. You know, what is, you go camping, you lived in an RV for a long time. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to experience camp and we go see a show. It's very campy. It's kind of, you know, a little too campy. I don't want to go into all the definitions of it, whatever. But this idea that we come together and we're in a community, we talked about awareness last week and today we've got mindfulness. Mindfulness cannot exist without awareness. And so sometimes, you know, as we're seeking to be more aware or to be more connected to our lives or more, you know, reflected in the things that we see around us, like I said, we take it very seriously. But when we have that element of play, when we let go of the stress and all of the burden that we carry when it comes to this idea of being present in our lives and, you know, accepting the opportunities as they come because we're prepared, we're present. Um, that this idea of mindfulness and awareness are crucial. And so we come to camp to play. I was thinking back, like, how did I begin to be a camper? Not having done it when, we, when I was a child, I was thinking, when did this start? And I realized that I began camping to bring my children on vacation. Why? Because we could afford it. Because camping was a low investment 
vacation to take my children on. And you know what? When you get in the woods, there's no souvenir shops. There's nothing to buy. There's no eating out. Everything you bring with you is kind of self-contained. And it was just a really great way to spend time with my kids, to allow them to have a vacation when money was tight. So I became a camper. And over the years, I transitioned from laying on the ground in a tent <laughs> to a motor home, which was a lot more comfortable. But even last year, I went back to backpacking and sleeping in a tent out in the middle of the desert. So all of this is to say that spending this time out in nature, beginning with camping with my children as young boys, helped me to really foster and nurture a relationship with nature. And as I've gotten older and really learned so much more about a mindfulness practice, back then I really didn't have any thoughts in my mind of a mindfulness practice. But seeing nature through the eyes of two young boys, they notice everything, the bug crawling on the ground, you know, the fish and the and the little creatures at the side of the water, or interesting mushrooms growing as we hike through their eyes. And I didn't realize it at the time, it's years later, they enhanced my mindfulness practice by showing me that youthful view of the experience that I had offered to them. My thought at the time, honestly, was still, I'm so glad I have enough money to take my kids on some vacation and whatever it is, I'm going to make it work. But through their eyes, I started to see the world and uh, the more than human world, the natural world through a completely different lens. And yeah. it just continued to, to grow and be something that I lean into when, when I need some time to clear my mind. Right. You know, it's so interesting that you, you can isolate those origin stories. You know, I think I can too sometimes, and I'll tell a story. But I've been recently, one of my activities has been going through my old journals and looking at old folders and you know, getting rid of things that are no longer relevant because I've got a, a file cabinet filled with ideas that I've started, some that came um, to fruition, others that are still in process, in development, as it were, and some that just don't make any sense anymore. And I don't even remember why I started them. But what I'm finding is 1982, words like mindfulness and yoga, words like meditation and sitting. I thought I had first heard the word sitting when I was um, a cashier at Wetlands in New York City. In I was there 90 to 92. And I remember one of the door staff, Bernard, he was like, he talked about this incredible thing called sitting. And I just was convinced that in my today, that was when I first heard about it. Looking at all these papers, there are origin stories that started way before I even imagined they started. You know, the seeding of language, you know, S-E-E-D-I-N-G, the sort of beginnings of, you know, awareness. You know, I wasn't so aware of what these things were, but the words captivated me enough to write them down. Taking those classes in school that I thought I would like, that I didn't like then, but came back around to. You know, there's I found, yeah, I think I said this at one point, I worked at Cafe Borgia too in New York City. I completely blocked that out of my memory. There are certain memories that come back in fragments and there are certain things that are completely elusive to my conscious memory. But then, thank goodness, I wrote them all down. 
but now it's like there's nothing more boring or or just tedious than going back and reading old journals unless there's a, like a moment like that where I go, holy shit, I did that. Or that was something I'd completely forgotten. But it, it's everything begins to make sense in the trajectory when I'm able to see these little tiny timelines. Now, I say little tiny timelines because I don't necessarily believe in that time is linear, you know, but in this timeline that we are living in presently, these little tiny timelines are, they tell my story in a way that I had forgotten. So, you know, what is it to be a witness, to be aware enough to be the witness of your own life? And that's part of the, these practices increase that clarity uh, around these things that I didn't even realize required more clarity. You, you mentioned uh, and it triggered a thought. You, you mentioned the seeding of language. And what that reminded me of was spelling, you know, seeding, I guess, because we came into the S's, but spelling or spells are considered part of magic. And spelling is how we put words together. We, we string a bunch of letters and we have a, a spell uh, we, or we have the spelling. We string a bunch of words and we have a spell. So the magic of uh, words and how we put them together is like a spell. How I talk to myself generally is manifested. If I'm getting into like a real funk and the only thing I say to myself is bad things and how awful life is and oh my gosh, and I'm in this whole mindset or mindfulness practice, because it really is, that can be a mindfulness practice too, of thinking that everything is just falling apart and constantly having that conversation or casting that spell into my life can change with, you know, what words am I going to use next? Can I change the spell to, <laughs> and the words to create a different type of magic in my life? And I believe I can. But now I'm going in a completely different direction than we had planned for today. But two things came up. First of all, I'm pretty sure I, I landed my husband through an actual spell. And it was actually a double spell. A friend of mine who I worked with at Pfizer, she's from New Orleans, and she had this this kind of um, ritual where she said, if there's someone that you like, you put his name in a bowl of sugar. And that was it. And, but I didn't ask her, do I write it on a piece of paper and then put the sugar over it? Do I write his name in the sugar? Like, and then she said something like light a candle. I think there was a candle. I forget all the little things. I remember the bowl of sugar. So I did, I was covering all my things. I wrote Brian's name on a little piece of paper. I put it in a bowl. I covered it in sugar. And then I wrote his name in sugar over that. <laughs> And then I lit a match to light a candle. And by the time the match went out, my phone rang. And wouldn't you fucking know it was Brian who had never called. It was like, I would. So I, you know, for better or worse, I manifested. No, not for worse, all for better. But I, I have to go for the joke that I pr pretty sure I manifested that. So this morning, and I'm, I'm someone who's kind of like an advertiser's wet dream. If you know how to, <laughs> such an old way of saying it. I can't believe I said that. But. If you can sell it, I'm probably your person. Like I bought the Lori Davis hair care from the infomercial back in the 90s. Worst hair care ever. It was, but I thought, why would Cher lie to me? Why would Ted Danson lie to me? They were the spokespeople. Danson wears a hair piece and so does Cher. Like, and they're, they're promoting shampoo. I should have known. But, you know, my whole discerning mind goes out the window and I'm like, ooh, that's cool. 
So I'm scrolling today. And of course, the scrolling doesn't help all this. I'm much better at not, you know, doing the impulse buy, but I do the impulse pause. And so I see Oprah. I've seen this little thing a hundred times. I've never stopped. This morning I stopped. Oh my God, it's just so tiresome. These like long videos or scripts that you get that tell you, we're going to give you the 20 word script that, you, that it, this is why I'm saying this, because there was a 20 word script that they call the genie script. And if you say these words every day, you will get what you want. Well, Oprah's like, I don't do vision boards anymore because I'm a master uh, manifester and I don't need to do that anymore. But these words, so it already feels shenanigan-y. It feels salesy. It feels not salesy in like the way that we need, everyone needs to sell their shit, but in the way that it's like they're trying to manipulate the whole thing. And for those of us who do believe in the power of attraction and manifestation and all of this energetic work that is not just about wishful thinking and crossing fingers. There's action involved too. And there's other things you have to do that. This is something that could be alluring. And so I stopped and I, I didn't want to watch one of those stupid fucking videos that would just make my cortisol. So I said, give me the transcript and I'm just kind of flowing through it, trying to find, you know, and you don't often get that option. And so I'm going through and it's all selling me shit, but these CDs, I'm like, I don't have a CD player anymore. Who's buying CDs? And then People are all, you know, sort of invoking their divinity as they're making comments on it and just wanted to get to the 20 words that Oprah said, we're going to give you the 20 words. And there's no 20 words because I do believe in the power of words. So I'm pretty sure someone let it leak. I'm going to go out on the internets and the interwebs and Google it later because I'm curious. I do have some spells. I have, you know, things like that. And I love to write. And when you come up with that perfect sentence, when you string the words together that just make your heart sing. That is magic. It is pure alchemy. It is, it is magic. Well, if you come up with the 20 words, please share them with us because we can't. <laughs> well, it's like that, that, that chocolate chip cookie recipe that they said came from like Bergdorf Goodman or something years ago. And it's a thousand dollar, you know, cookie recipe. And someone's like, fuck that. And they just put it on the internet. <laughs> and I'm sure it's just a Toll House cookie recipe, like on the episode of Friends. When Phoebe's grandmother had that secret recipe that Monica was like working tirelessly to figure it out. And, and then she's like, it's called Toulouse, <laughs> Toll House. And it's all on the back of the thing. Anyway. My mother would make brownies for all of our events. And all the grand grandkids, of course, love Graham's brownies. And so she would always bring them and everybody liked them. And so one time we were having a, an event and there was brownies, other brownies that were made that were made from scratch. Uh, like all the time and effort you put into like creating this, uh, this delicious dessert from scratch. And of course, the kids all ate Graham's brownies. Why? Because they're Graham's brownies. But they were Duncan Hines brownies made right out of the box. Num, 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 num. Did not make them better or worse than any other brownies. <laughs> I particularly love them a lot. I find them really uh, tasty and, and creamy, and I just love those brownies. But the attraction was, and maybe they had just this increased taste of deliciousness because of the mindfulness that Graham put in while she was making these, right? I think it was I don't remember when you talked about this, but you had said the phrase, and I might get it wrong, that oh, it was a gift. You said preparation is a it's gift. It's all of it. 
It's all yeah. of it. Whatever was said, it, it is all of it. And you know what? You know, we create memories through things like this. And so when we have a Duncan Hines crispy, chewy brownie from the box today, it can take us right back to those times. And when you're a kid, you don't know the difference between homemade and from a box. You're just getting chocolatey, sugary goodness. And you're from your grandma. So made with love. And when you make, when you do anything with love, it changes the energy of the thing. And yes. so the person receiving, consuming, you know, reflected, whatever, they're going to get a bit of that, I believe. I think that that's, you know, so that's also, that's energy that's moving. Part of this camp, this M is also about movement. What is, you know, we talk a lot about transformation. And last week, we kind of clarified a little bit about what we mean by transformation. The movement of energy is transforming. It is when we move, like think about waking up in the morning and not really wanting to get up. And then you get up. And if you're someone who likes to take a walk in the morning or do a yoga practice or do some kind of movement practice to get the prana, the life force, that energy in your body moving, there's a clear difference in a before and after. Go getting to a yoga class, exhausted, maybe at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, by the end, it's like, it doesn't matter if it was a gentle class or a really effortful, you know, aggressive class or whatever. Shavasana is the great equalizer at the end. By the time we leave, we feel a different energy in our bodies. Something has transformed. Something has moved through. Think about that now in terms of just like walk. I had such resistance to walking in my neighborhood every day, even it's a gorgeous neighborhood. Why wouldn't I? If I went to someone else's house and they lived here, I'd be saying, oh, I'd be walking every day. You know, this is a no-brainer. So we got a new fence in the backyard, couldn't let our dogs just run outside. So while the little dog, we could sort of trust to stay in the yard and do her thing. And she can't really walk on a leash anyway for her heart. The big dog needed to get out. And so, you know, I needed to be the one to do it. So I've been walking her every day. And now I look forward to it when I wake up. I'm no longer resistant. I look forward to that time. When I've changed the relationship with my dog. That energy is different. The energy in my body when I get home, ready to do other things is different. The energy in the body, it just, it moves with movement. And so if we can, and it's not always easy and it's not always doable, but if we can get over the hurdle, the obstacle of resistance and do the thing, oh my gosh, then that's when all the possibilities begin to open up. You're like, oh, I see, and it feels good. And why did I believe that? I should have been doing this. But don't shoot all over yourself. Just start now. Yeah, I mean, there's an energy of motion and it's very impactful in our vitality, working with people who sometimes have injuries, you know, and when I've had injuries in the past, my my inclination is, oh, I better sit down and rest it, which yes, I'm not saying don't rest it and don't care for it. But when we move and keep the body moving, there's a, a fluidity and a flexibility, this uh, free flow within the body. And we talk about, or I talk about, you know, pranayama or pranamaya kosha as the energy sheath, you know, and it, in my first thoughts about prana and the pranamaya kosha was the energy of breath, right? Breath comes into the body. It vitalizes and, and nourishes and nurtures every cell. And then we exhale and it moves. But other things have vital energy that moves throughout our body. We've got blood that flows, you know, and I, I don't know the numbers, but blood flows through our body really quick and it never, ever stops. Thank goodness. 
moving around, cleansing. Well, it does at some point. Yeah, at some point it will stop, but it moves, it cleanses, it hydrates, it oxygenates. We also have the movement, like we talked about Anamaya Kosha last week, the food body. We also have this vital energy in this canal that starts in the mouth where we put our food, we put the thing that's going to nourish our body and it flows through one single tube that winds and moves throughout the whole body. And each place that it enters has a different transformation to it. We put the food in our mouth and the enzymes in our mouth begin the breakdown process. Then we get to swallow it and it gets to sit in the belly for a while. And again, break down even more. We start to absorb the nutrients, you know, this energy that comes through that's going to be used by the rest of the body. Then it goes into, you know, our lower organs of digestion, the digestive tracts, where even more energy is transmuted from that pathway and taken out the fluid and anything that the body can use before we eliminate it. So even though prana and vital energy may initially have been a thing that was, I had in my mind, compartmentalized to breathing. Kosha has so many different other ways of connecting with this vital energy, this constant fluidity, flexibility, and movement within the confines of the Anamaya Kosha, the food body, this physicality that we have, but also you know, what's swirling around us out there in the energetic fields of being a human on planet Earth in nature. Sometimes when you talk, I feel like it is magic because I don't understand the the science of it. And I think magic is often because we don't understand the thing. It's illusion. It's, you know, I think that women were seen as powerful back in the day because we have a cycle. So we knew when crops were going to be, you know, coming up, we just could measure it against, but men didn't necessarily understand that. So it was magical and we were witches and all that, whatever. I mean, it's, that's hugely redu- reductionist. But this idea of magic and this idea of breath and movement and transformation and energy, they all are conflated at different times in different practices. So, you know, Liz, who offered breath work at the Prancing Peacock years ago, I haven't done it in a long time, but I did it twice with her. And both times it was extremely magical to me I'm sure there is a scientific explanation for why my body felt and my mind experienced the things that I did. But since I'm not, I'm not, you know, schooled in that, I don't know what it is. I'm just leaving it in the realm of magic. And it was a certain breath pattern. I don't exactly remember what it was, but we were all lying in a circle with our heads out and our feet in. And what's important here too is community, because there are some really intense experiences that go along with this breath, this particular breath work. And if I didn't feel trust in the facilitator, which I had extreme trust in Liz, I knew she would take care of me and that she wouldn't let anything bad happen to me. In the community where everyone else was experiencing it, I felt connected. I felt a part of this larger network. And as we were going through it, there were times my hands felt like they were blowing up like balloons. They felt like they were 10 times the size they were my arms as well, my feet, my legs. There were times I felt like I was levitating. I felt as if I was off the ground completely. My mind was fuzzy. Now I've, ex- I've experimented with different types of 
mind-altering drugs and things like that in my past. So I have a sense of things that can happen in this container. Just to be clear, not anymore of those, those types of things. But this experience was so intense in my physical body by using the breath, the energy that was created. It wasn't just from me. It was from this breath, yes, from me, and from every other person breathing around me, from Liz, who was breathing into our experience to help comfort us and keep us. Every time I felt there was a panic, I felt her hand either on my ankles, on my wrists, on my head, somewhere where she was reminding me that it's okay, this is supposed to happen. So this idea that like we can manufacture certain energies using our breath on purpose, like you were sort of suggesting this earlier that the breath, I've been breathing my whole life, why do I need to learn to breathe? And this is something any of us who offer this breath work have heard at some point or another, and it's because the breath works from the autonomic place, but it also can be deliberately manipulated. And through those manipulations, we can shift the energy in our bodies, in our lives, and we can impact, I think, a lot bigger energetic field, which is also something. So energy, everything is energy, right? Even if it's solid, it's energy. But we're talking about a very specific kind of energy that can be, can be you know, that rides our breath. So how do we use our breath? How do we use that energy? We use it for good. We use our superpowers only for good. Yeah, um, maybe it's um, a way of harnessing, harnessing the inner vitality that we're looking, that I'm looking to connect with. Like when I can really feel like I feel so vital and energetic. And that can be through sitting in meditation, a dynamic breath work, a walk in nature. There's so many different ways to connect with this, like this inner vitality. I like to think of it as spr a spring of vitality, you know, like, you know, there's something that's flowing and fluid because, you know, if I can use a word from nature, then I'm happy. So this flowing water and water is my favorite element, although I love them all, but I have a deep connection to the fluidity and the movement of water, it's cleansing nature, it's hydration. So I just love that. But, you know, really looking at this energy, my internal energy, but as well connecting to the external energy. There's an internal landscape, what goes on inside my body, but also how my body navigates through the natural world. And recently, so we're talking about energy. We talked about connection. We talked about awareness, mindfulness, magic. We have all of these different practices that we can connect with. And the benefits that I have derived, and it's one of the reasons that, you know, camp, and I know it's, you know, one of the reasons why I really like camping or offering camp is because I really made the trans the transformation of recognizing that nature is not separate from me. And I can believe that I've gone out, I'm going out into nature. I am going to visit nature. Those are things that I would say, those are part of my spells or the words that I've used. But I'm not going out into nature. I'm already in nature, whether I'm inside my house or walking or sitting around all these plants that are surrounding me. As a human, I am an intricate part of nature. 
just like the trees that I'm looking at, the plants behind me, the abundance of chipmunks that run around my property now. They're a part of nature, the birds eating at my feeder. So it's not a separation of I have to actively find a way to go to nature. You bring up a really good point. In fact, before you even said that, I wrote down body separate from nature is illusion. And I think that we have a tendency, and I just did it myself. I said the internal energy and the external energy. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I'm wrong on that. I'm going to say there's no such thing as internal energy versus external energy. It's just energy. And that our body is the illusion of separateness. It's the illusion that we are somehow, that internal landscape is separate from the external landscape. And, you know, we know that that's not true because when the blood does stop flowing and we are in the ground, we return to that, that soil. We become the food. We become that part of nature's cycle. There's a wonderful woman. She reached, she, I don't know if she recently passed away, but she had fourth stage cancer. She was, I think, 80 something. And she said, she got up there on the TED Talk stage and she said, I don't want to be remembered. I don't want to leave an impression. I just, she said something like, when I'm in the dirt and the worms are coming for me and everything, and she's like, I'm going to be delicious. Like she just, the way that she said it, and I was like, I want to be delicious too. I want when I go in that I'm just part of that natural cycle. And once that happens, all of that that was seemingly internal doesn't exist as in a container anymore. It is released into the into the nature, which is just which just is. It's our isness. And so, like, it's all so interesting because we do in our language separate. And, and I do it all the fucking time. And I think in our first episode, I said something so sort of lofty, like, oh, you'll hear me use the word binary or non-binary a lot because I don't believe that it's either or. It's a yes and. Life is yes and always. And that between the either and the or is an entire spectrum of experience that allows us to be who we are at any given time. And so with that, I yield my time. <laughs> I yield back. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, what does all this mean in relation to camp? So we've got mindfulness, we have movement, we have magic, like just the whole idea that I can connect with this sense of magic, internal, external, and shared by the fabulous women that gather around us at different events that we offer. Um, but I want to talk more about what I take away from it. Like as a facilitator, I often would think, hey, I'm the facilitator of this program. I'm the teacher of that class. But in the end, and you and I talked about this as we were loading the car last year after camp, we left like revved up on the, the energy that was shared with us from our participants, but also the fun of, you know, playing together and watching people interact with complete strangers and leaving as friends was, you know, this mindful transition of let's really connect with not only the natural world, because we're on a farm when we offer camp, but to each and every person that I come in contact with. And not only the people, but you know, I know a few people are like, oh, we're going into the woods. I hope we don't see any snakes. So, you know, that mindfulness of knowing each step, but connecting with my own 
inner magic and being able to share what revs me up and then noticing that other people are excited about it too. So the mindfulness of nature, like this morning on my walk, I spent 15 or 20 minutes taking photographs of all kinds of mushrooms that I found. There was this section, and this is the mindfulness practice that kind of seems at first, I thought, oh, this is kind of odd. You stop and take a picture of all of these mushrooms. But there was one, and it looked like a cup. And within that cup, because of the dampness of last night, the cup of the mushroom was filled with water. And it just fascinated me that it had this little tiny lake of hydration sitting in the center of the mushroom. But this mushroom was so powerful that it actually disturbed this whole hill of moss. And the moss was pushed up off of the dirt, flicked over next to this mushroom that had so much energy and such a need to express its vitality by popping out of the earth that it it turned the earth over. You need to write children's books. <laughs> you need to write children's books. I mean, I thought of Willy Wonka immediately with the little yellow tulip teacup or whatever it was, you know, then took a bite. That was so visual and it was so beautiful. And I think that you could really turn children into nature. I won't say nature junkies because that is an extreme, but, you know, nature lovers and nature understanders and sharing. I know that I just think you should fucking write children's books. Maybe bring out that childlike sense of wonder in adults. That's what it did for me. It, it brought me back to that time of camping with my kids. My kids totally would have noticed that and made me slow down and look at it. Now I go for a walk and, you know, I started hiking. So in hiking, I'm walking fast and moving and putting in steps and, you know, and there's nothing. I'm not saying that I don't still hike. I do like it. But when I started mindfulness walking, my pace down because it has a different energy to it. It has a, I'm, I'm doing it for a different reason. And that is to enhance my ability to notice the subtle. And I think that's the important thing about the koshas and especially this kosha, the pranamaya kosha. You know, the physical body we did last week, tangible, easy to connect with. We notice it, although it has some subtlety that if not paying attention, I don't notice. But pranamaya kosha seems to be that next step. It starts bringing our, my awareness, my mindfulness into something a little bit more subtle. And next week, we're going to keep getting more subtle as we come into Manamaya Kosha and moving through. So the slowing down is an assistant for me to notice things that are a little bit more subtle, maybe that I have to actually focus my attention to see and slow down my movement from a hike to a mindfulness walk. And that's not to say you can't be mindful with a pace. Mm -hmm. You know, you can absolutely be mindful and, you know, the slowing down may be a mind slowing down, you know, or the way that we see the things. I know that when I did the Boston, New York AIDS ride the first time, I was very sort of distracted by my, my lack of knowledge of how to use my bike at optimally. Like I said, it had been collecting cat hair and laundry for a long time before I took it out on a 300 plus mile bike ride. 
But there was something in the moments where first, in terms of Pranamaya, leaving the big convention center en masse, thousands of riders beginning to ride out en masse, streets lined with people who are clapping and yelling and screaming and whistling. That's energy. That's breath. They're using their breath to express their, their gratitude for what we're doing and their love for this, this thing that we're doing. I had no idea the impact it would have on my body. And we talked about Anamaya, but the physical body contains all the other layers. Our bodies hold everything. So in one moment, riding out, hearing all of those cheers, people using their breath and energy to impact us as we're going, I had a complete, I, I want to say five Koshik experience <laughs> or six Koshik experience. My entire being was on fire. And I use that. I love water too, but fire. The other day I said to someone, I'm an ex-smoker. There's something about breathing fire that I love. And I've always kind of been a bit of a pyromaniac. I like, I don't burn things down, but I love building fire. I love, you know, knowing that even if all the wood is wet, I'm going to get that fire going. I'm going to be there and I'm going to make it happen. So like fire is my thing. And I feel like it lit me on fire as I'm riding down this bike. I could have been on in flames, but, and that wasn't even my breath my energy putting out, to, it was receiving it from others, other people's breath impacting my energy. It was, and I'll never be able to write about it, to be able to tell about it, that will be able to provide enough data for the listener to have the experience. It was so unique among experiences that I've had. So there's so many different ways into this that we come into community we share our physical bodies, our breath, our energy, all of that contributes. I think we talked a little bit last week too about co-creation, that we're co-creating constantly. And one of the things that I didn't say out loud, but I was thinking to myself as I was listening back, was that our power comes from relationship. It comes from like our muscles and our bones and our, all the stuff internally is in relationship. It works together that when we come together in relationship and community, we are so much more powerful. There's power in numbers. There's power in sharing our breath with each other. If you've ever seen someone who's struggling for breath and you offer them even just energetically borrow some of my breath, there's a sense of even if the other person isn't you know, tangibly breathing easier, there's an energy of ease that is created. There's a camaraderie. It's all about relationship. I think. I think it is too. Uh, yeah, you said if you ever see somebody who's struggling for breath, I was up in Breckenridge and that's pretty high up there. The first night that I got there, I was the person struggling for breath. It was the first time I had ever experienced, you know, being sick because of being at an elevation. I even the, the next morning, I got a good night's sleep. I got there. I didn't know what was going on, but I was just feeling like way out of sorts. And I went to bed and I slept. And when I woke up, I felt much, much better. But I also then decided Breckenridge had an oxygen bar. And I was like, I think I just need to go and have some oxygen. So I went to the oxygen bar. I got a magazine. Then you just sit there for a half an hour and breathe just and breathe. But it just, it was amazing how much better I felt when I left the oxygen bar. And the way the resort that we were staying at was designed, in order to get from the main campus of where all the activities were to where the cabins were that you stayed in was on an uphill climb. Now, they were 
kind enough to have, you know, little golf, golf carts. carts that would, you know, you could definitely ha get a ride and you yeah. didn't have to make the walk. But I wanted to make the walk and challenge myself a little bit. And so I just filled up on oxygen and decided <laughs> to take the walk up the hill, which I was doing fine. But I saw this gentleman sitting on the curb and he was gray. And I'm thinking, oh, this is not a good situation. I could tell he was having a really hard time. All of my first aid stuff started like clicking in. The man is kind of gray. He's looking like he has labored breath. And so I go over and I sit down and, you know, talk to him. Are you doing okay? And he's like, this is a lot bigger of a hill than I thought it was. And I was like, well, there's not a whole lot of oxygen. And so I start asking the questions like, how are you? How's your breathing? And there I am. I was like, can you just like, and it's just he and I, there's nobody else around. So I can't get up and leave cell phone. I don't have a cell phone back then. So I'm just talking to him thinking, you know, maybe we could just like slow down our exhale a little bit. And I'm, and this was just intuitive long before I had any real prana practices. It just felt right. And finally, somebody is taking a golf cart up to drop off another guest. And they waved the guy down. And I was like, I think, you know, if it would be okay, could you let that guest wait with us? I think you might want to go back down and get like, get somebody to come up and help. And he was like, okay. And he looks at the guy and I was like, you still okay? And he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm okay to sit here and wait. And I was like, all right, so we're just going to hang out and breathe together. But finally, the golf cart comes up and brings him down. And he was fine. He went and he sat in the oxygen bar. There was nothing that was catastrophic, but definitely somewhere where he was struggling to reconnect with his own breath. Um, and a minute or two of just being in community it, with somebody who was able to help him relieve the panic that he was feeling was just something that felt like a gift for, for me, who, not to right. him. No, and for those who have not been in higher um, elevations, it's not a joke. You know, I was in Telluride, had a similar experience and just personally not with someone else. But I thought it was a joke and I was taking steps two at a time before I realized I could pass out. So the oxygen is important. I know it was that kind of a fad too for a while. I think in LA they had oxygen bars too. Anyway, we're at the hour. We're, we're close to camp. We're getting there. If you're local, please come. If you're not local, hopefully you were still able to glean some, some benefit from our conversation today, if only to giggle here and there. I think camp is going to be um, a celebration of our inner vitality, a place like I, I love threshold practices. So a threshold of mindfulness and meditation and without a doubt, a magical experience. Let's Until next fun. time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. 
As always, we want to thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time. Thank you.